The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 28th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about the NBA Finals matchup between the LA Lakers and the Miami Heat. We'll also discuss the sad for LSU fans. Opening weekend of college football. Plus, we'll get into life inside the National Hockey League bubble. Finally, we'll talk with a critic of big-time high school basketball who presides over one of the nation's top basketball programs. He's Father Edwin Leahy of St. Benedict's Prep in Newark, New Jersey. It's featured in the new documentary series, Benedict Men. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm in Washington, D.C. Also in D.C., author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, the pride of the Pelham Pelicans, Stefan Fatsis. Congrats on your personal best in Scrabble. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. 653 points in one game. It was a good game. <laughs> Usually the personal best is from, from one game. You can't add. It's like my, my, my best bench press is my two top bench presses added together. Added together? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did not note in my tweet that you read and saw that that my daughter had a 688-point game last week, which is insane. Didn't want to take any focus away from yourself no. by giving some shine to your daughter. Oh, come I on. Understand. I've given her plenty of shine. <laughs> With us from Palo Alto, from the Strake Jesuit Crusaders, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson, who said over the weekend, and I quote, we decided to drive over there around 7 p.m. yesterday, and the house of enchiladas had run out of enchiladas. Yeah, it was really disappointing. I just kind of feel like they had one job <laughs> and they couldn't and they couldn't deliver. So next time, Bravo House of Enchiladas in San Jose, I would like, I mean, at least give us a little bit more heads up uh, before we head all the way over there. As our producer Melissa said before we started recording, it was just a house. <laughs> yeah, it was just a house. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The NBA Finals matchup, it's set. The basic storyline is the same, uh, I believe, from both an off-court narrative perspective and an on-court, whatever, non-narrative perspective. It's LeBron's old team, the Heat, not the Cavs, against his new one, the LA Lakers. As Nick Green wrote in Slate, after the Heat beat the Celtics to make the finals, Miami was the original super team, bringing LeBron and Chris Bosh to team up with Dwayne Wade way back in 2010. When LeBron left, the team came apart but it didn't crumble. The Heat have rebuilt themselves behind free agent signee Jimmy Butler, trade acquisitions Goran Dragic, Jay Crowder, and Andre Godala, 
draft picks Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero, and undrafted players Duncan Robinson and Kendrick Nunn. The Lakers, with LeBron and Anthony Davis and a roster constructed to support them, are playing LeBron-era Heat-style super team basketball, and they're a heavy favorite to win the title behind it. Stefan, I don't believe the current Heat are somehow morally superior to the old Heat or to the current Lakers, but is there something pleasing about watching a team this balanced and non-hierarchical where the star of the game, the best player, is going to be different from game to game? I don't know. Jimmy Butler is kind of a star, but he has bounced around and been neglected as a as a top-tier star, um, partly because of his of the teams that he's played with and the balance that uh, he had on those teams and also partly because of his personality. Yeah, I wouldn't say neglected would be my my first choice of, of adjective with, with yeah, Jimmy Butler. Maybe not. Okay. But he is a really good player, even if he may not be in super team category. But there aren't super players behind him. Yeah, you're right. So we have learned about Tyler Hero, rookie from Kentucky, who scored, what, 37 the other night? Duncan Robinson, you know, white guy, Williams College to start his career, transferred to Michigan. Did you see the text that Mark Titus posted the other day that Duncan Robinson got in touch with him when he was at Michigan to ask him about going into media because he figured his basketball career was over? So I do think there is good to be able to shoot. There is there is something pleasing about watching a team that you don't expect to do well. I mean, it's why we root for underdogs. And as you know, by NBA standards, this is an underdog team. Well, Joel, I, if we can talk about Stefan behind his back here for a second, I think <laughs> the, the way that the Heat are constructed, they are not a team that's like, Jimmy Butler is our star and let's all do whatever we can to support right. Jimmy Butler. It's like Bam Adebayo is our best player this game. Tyler Hero is our best. Like they have different lineups in crunch time in, depending on the game, depending on who's playing well. It is like a traditional team sport kind of concept where it's just whatever's best for the team. And again, it's, I'm not saying this to be like, this is more moral and they're like showing us the right way to play. It is just unusual and interesting to watch. Yeah, it's an ensemble in the way that you think of that uh, that last Pistons championship team in 2004, right? Where there's not one superstar, but there are a bunch of really good above average NBA players and they all take part equally. You just have, you never have any idea from night to night, who's going to be the guy that gives you 25 or 30. And the thing that is moral, instead of comparing it to the way that, you know, KD went to Golden State or Braun went to the Lakers and, and brought Anthony Davis, the way I think about it is, what's moral to me is the way that they've done in comparison to say like Philadelphia or teams that tank. Because mm-hmm. Miami never gave up. Like after Brian left, they tried to to remain contenders. Pat Riley, you know, said he worked with what he had, and, and that goes all the way back to making marginal prospects like Josh Richardson and Hassan Whiteside. He like actually turned, developed them, and turned them into assets that allowed them to build the team that they have now. They turned Justice Winslow and Dion Waiters into Jay Crowder, Solomon Hill, and Andre Gudala. Right. So it's like the ultimate rejoinder to the process. Um, and I think that's like worthy of respect. The, Miami never tried to cheat its fans. It never tried to cheat the league. They always tried to stay competitive, and now they've been rewarded for it. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, their first move after LeBron left was to sign Chris Bosh to a huge extension, and then Chris Bosh wasn't able to play anymore because of his blood clotting issues. And even that didn't tank them. Like that's the kind of thing where I think a lot of franchises were so like, "All right, we're going to be bad for the next five years." I mean, like. 
the the Magic made the playoffs this year, but like look at their like brethren in Florida who've been rebuilding and terrible <laughs> for years upon years upon years and have had high draft pick after high draft pick are and are in a place and in a state where free agents would conceivably be attracted to. And so you have to give credit to the organization. I mean, Stefan, I feel like the heat culture stuff is super annoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we just ignore the catchphrase, they have a really good franchise and a, a really, really good coach who's been able to strike the balance of like, you know, it, it generally has not gone well for LeBron's coaches when LeBron isn't there. But like, he's a guy who's able to command respect from these star players and like have totally different teams be successful in totally different ways. It's pretty impressive. And he's had tenure for all intents and purposes. Uh, Pat Riley as the president or whatever his title is of the organization didn't try to, you know, didn't get rid of Eric Spolstra after LeBron left and after the team's success began to wane. And to follow up on what you were saying, though, about how they responded to LeBron leaving, I think it's also important to point out, though, that what they play in the Eastern Conference, and the Eastern Conference has not exactly had a lot of teams that you were terribly worried about going into the into the playoffs. There was always the opportunity for a team that retained some good talent, brought in some good talent to make a run in the playoffs. And I don't know that this year is any different from that. I mean, they they beat the Bucs easily. Well, it is different well, in the, the fact that they didn't have home court advantage as a five seed. Sure. Didn't well, hurt yeah. them at all. And the Bucs were going to be a historically good team, I mean, through the regular season. It's not like, you right. know, they beat them. And that team was supposed to have been special. And the Bucks just weren't the same after the hiatus. They were they were bad, and they were great before. No, and the Raptors were not as good as they were last year, but they were still mm-hmm. really, really good. And a team also that was built around not, not a gigantic star. They lost their gigantic mm-hmm. star. Yeah, it's all true. I would like to just give a brief comment on... <laughs> Stefan mentioned uh, the whiteness of Duncan Robinson, who is, inc- is extremely white. But I've found the, <laughs> the conversation around Alex Caruso of the Lakers to be particularly interesting and like comparison to Tyler Hero. So Alex Caruso is uh, not only white, not only undrafted, not only described as being quote unquote scrappy and likes to do the like nitty gritty work. But he's also very athletic and is is like jumping up and like blocking dudes at the rim and is like slamming. And I've found that announcers have a really hard time like grappling with the complexities of Alex Caruso because like he's more athletic, I think, than Tyler Hero. And he gets talked about like he's Delhi or like he's, you know, here's my theory, Joel. I think it's entirely due to his patchy hair. Oh. And I think that just like throws everything off because you do not see players in the NBA with hair like this. No, that, that so, hair is, I, I, that is actively part of his bit because, you know, it, I was watching the game with my wife, Janae, shout out, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like she was like, that guy's in the NBA. Like, you know what I mean? Like she's exactly. like looking at his hair and it's like, that's nobody looks like that anymore in the NBA. I, I don't even know if people did in the seventies and eighties, but it's not, that's not a hairstyle that people have, and it, and it, it confuses people. You, nobody that look, that it's been really difficult to think of any NBA player that looks like that with that head, <laughs> and and been like a superstar, been athletic or something. You know what I mean? Credit to uh, our colleague Jack Hamilton, if I can bet- betray his uh, confidence here, who was immediately able to recall the last NBA player with hair like that. Can you, can either of you guys summon the name? So it's five seconds. Is it a white? Is it wait? Hold on. Is it a white? A white player? Like white guy who oh, okay. played in the NBA for a long time, oh. who had hair like that. Kurt, 
Kevin Connard, or is that was that that guy? Was that the name? Is Connard? You remember what I'm talking about? I have no idea who you're talking about. But okay, maybe maybe uh, some maybe one of our listeners can translate that. The answer is Steve Blake. <gasps> oh, oh man, that's ah uh, that kills me. That I kills mean, me. You know, twenty something male pattern baldness is not unusual. It isn't. The, it isn't the NBA though. It isn't the NBA. Oh, you know yeah. who else did? What's that guy's name? Nanad Kristich kind of had a like a mm, oh, so that's man, you really a, pulling had a thing and oh, Costa Kufos. Costa I'm Kufos. Like, okay. I'm I'm rolling with like you really bad white guy. Yeah. This, what, is, like, what, this what, is like what, my you're Jeopardy pulling out category. Like, like my Greek dude who yeah. played five <laughs> seconds in the league. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm upset because I mentioned the comparison is to Steve Blake in a text group earlier this week. And now I'm mad that I don't, I can't say it and take credit for it here because you're right. Like even physically, he sort of looks weird in the way that Steve Blake kind of <laughs> did. You know, I'm not trying to, but you know, it's just kind of the, the body type and everything. You just don't see it coming. And then it does. All right. Before we move on, since we've got an action packed program for you today, Joel, what are your thoughts on, you know, LeBron obviously, and the Lakers are huge favorites mm-hmm. here. It would be LeBron's fourth, Title. I take it back. Wh- Costa Cufos was in the league for like a decade. Wow, good for that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just what are your what are your thoughts on this being you know this team, LeBron, and like sort of how how this is playing out for him? I always for the like maybe the last couple of years, I've done the thing where I'm like, this is going to be the last time we see this version of LeBron. You know, where he's athletic, the best player on the floor, still able to control the action on the floor. And now I don't know anymore. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't have expected him to be this good at this age, and especially under these circumstances, because the bubble is so weird from everything else. It's I, like I keep saying, it's a different season from the one that was postponed in March. And for him to still be here at the end after all of that, like I just, it makes me wonder if and when I'll ever see a diminished LeBron more than anything. Like, what would that look like? Because I just, I don't, right now we don't have a, a a view of what that might look like. Do you guys like look at him and see something that, you know what I mean? Like we envision a, we- a weakened Bron? I think we saw it last year when he had the groin injury and he was having to carry a lot more mm-hmm. of the load of that team, even in the regular season. I mean, the playoffs, Stefan, have played out so perfectly for them. They haven't been extended in any of these series. LeBron has been able to play like in the mid 30s and minutes some games, which is unusual for him, like from, you know, the Cleveland days, he was having to play, you know, just huge minutes every, every game. And they didn't have to play the Clippers, who are the team that was constructed perfectly to defend him and where he would have had to defend Kawhi or or Paul George every game. Um, And they ran, they run into the Nuggets in this round where at the end of the series, it's like Jamal Murray who taps out because he's been going full bore in these seven game series and just Turning into a superstar before our eyes, Joel. Jamal mm-hmm. Murray, forty points. Yeah, man. He's every game. I would basically, give you, not literally, but I think that only uh, buttresses my point about this being a different season because I feel like Jamal Murray. This is like his whatever fourth, fifth year now. You know, what I mean, this is a different. And so, in this context, maybe this is the leap year he took in the bubble. Um, yeah, I, I mean. It'll still be weird because, like, do you think he'll make an all-star team in the West? I mean, or, or whatever. Like, I it, it, like he's great. But then I'm like, man, will he ever get a chance to make an all-star game? So I don't know. 
Stefan, but what where do you fall? Is it like more circumstances that this has just been the perfect time and year for for LeBron at this stage in his career? And obviously we haven't even mentioned Anthony Davis. He's good. Or do you feel like it's he's just a physical marvel and he will be doing this in three to 12 years. He is a physical marvel for sure. But at some point, look, he's got almost 60,000 regular and postseason minutes in his career, and that will catch up to him. And while he was spectacular at the end of the Nuggets series, earlier in the playoffs, he was not as good. He was not shooting great from the floor or from three-point range. He improved, you know, he stepped it up when he had to against Jamal Murray, locked him down on defense, went 38-15-10 in the final game. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing. He's, He's benefiting from having Anthony Davis with him. He can defer a little bit more than he used to. It is not all on him, but when he wants it to be on him, you know, his brain and his body can take over as as it did against the Nuggets. He's shooting 55% in the playoffs, 27 points per game, 10 rebounds and nine assists. If that's like him deferring and in a diminished state, then uh, he's maybe the greatest basketball player of all time, which maybe he in fact is. (laughs) Let me make a quick comparison before we go. You know, to to tie it all up, you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of Shaq with the Heat, where Shaq was still probably one of the three, five most dominant players in the league, but he, he wasn't quite the same. He couldn't take over a game in quite the same way. But like how Shaq had Dwayne Wade, now Brian has AD, who probably is the best more more explosive player and he doesn't have the burden of carrying teams in quite the same way but it it, it kind of feels the same to me in that way apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium apple card or virtual card number Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Saturday, September 26th at 9.19 a.m. Pacific, Joel D. Anderson tweeted, It's a beautiful fall Saturday, and I'm just disgusted with myself for not being able to turn away from this shit, SMH. (laughs) On Saturday, September 26th, just after 7 p.m. Eastern, Josh Levine thought, but did not tweet, it's a beautiful fall Saturday, and I'm just disgusted with myself for not being able to turn away from this shit, SMH. And now, let's take a look at the college football scoreboard. Iowa State 37, TCU 34, Mississippi State 44, sixth-ranked and defending national champion LSU 34. Joel, congrats to both of our teams for scoring 34 points. It's a good number. But back to your disgust, given that TCU had not lost yet and you do not have ESP, although maybe you'd studied the TCU roster and had a sense of what was going to happen. Um, I'm thinking your disgust had more to do with the fact that you could not stop yourself from watching these games. What's uh, what's wrong with us? I'm not going to just put it all on you. Well, I anticipated my disgust with TCU. Um, the quarterback <laughs> that I didn't even like isn't even playing this season. So I mean, I knew that it was going to, our, our prospects were pretty grim. But yeah, no, I'm frustrated with myself for endorsing this with my attention. I don't think it's right that the players are out there and that the universities and conferences and TV execs will benefit uh, given the perverse incentives they have to keep these games going. But, like, it's fall Saturday and I'm at home and football's on. And it's, I mean, that is a muscle that I exercise every every fall. 
You know, I don't know how to turn it off. It, college football is my favorite sport. And if it's on, I'm probably going to watch. Although I will say I tested that because, I mean, it's not like I was sitting up there watching Central Arkansas. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, well, I kind of did. I kind of did watch those. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I guess I, I, did, I did watch UTSA and a little, all those games. A little, just a little bit. I at least had a little bit. So I don't know. I mean, you... you you're I acting mean, you, like the TV was on and you just wandered by it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, it kind of, we, I live in a household where we don't watch TV. It's just like on in the background. And then like, I'll, gra- so it kind of was just gra- on yeah. and you wandered and then, by And then it. gradually you just sort of kind of gravitate toward it. So like, I knew coming into this Saturday that the, the TV was going to end up on those games. I just didn't know how much I'd be interested in what was going on. And, you know, ultimately it didn't probably look all that different from, the other fall Saturdays before. I'm, you you at least had something to theoretically be excited about until your team started playing. <laughs> theoretically being the key modifier there. Yeah, for me, it's more I do pay attention to what's going on in other games. But a lot of the time, it's just like looking at the scores and like maybe turning something on. If it's like, you know, at the end of Oklahoma K-State, I was like, oh, something weird seems to be happening here. Kansas State seems to be beating Oklahoma, so I'll turn it on. But I don't have it on all day. But yeah, I mean, uh, the LSU game and games are appointment viewing for me and always have been, and I I guess always, always will be. But it is less fun when the team loses is the thing that (laughs) I'm remembering. Uh, And when they go more than 600 yards passing, not fun. Although, Stefan. DBU. That's <laughs> Although, Stefan, I think we should really be praising LSU because winning during the pandemic season means that not enough of your players opted out. Maybe that not enough of your <laughs> players took advantage of the opportunity to go pro and earn the living that we think that they deserve. So I think just good on LSU for not playing well during this season. Have we, really have, have we connected it at all, by the way, to maybe possibly all of the players having COVID at one point this year? I mean, we didn't even think about that no, as a competitive too. disadvantage. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I did not watch all of those games that you just mentioned. I did watch a part of the uh, Mississippi State LSU game. My thoughts were these. Not a lot of wet mask wearing in the stands, sidelines. You're allowed to put to not wear your mask when you're eating and drinking. The SEC might have some issues there. Two, I thought what you know Joel just said about LSU maybe suffering from the fact that so many of its players had already uh, had uh, COVID and were recovering. At least according to to Ed Ogeron, that's what he said. That he said he said that they had had COVID, and so it was good that that would be a (laughs) competitive advantage. Mm, So mm. thundering herd immunity. (laughs) And the third thing I thought was that when did uh, Mississippi State trade for KJ Costello? I didn't realize that. I knew he was at Stanford and was a a pretty good quarterback, and they had a lot of quarterbacks there. Joel pushed him out of Palo Alto. That's right. Push him out of Palo Alto. He was so tired of talking to me at practice, so they just escaped. He knows I'm not going back to Starkville anytime soon. Yeah. Did he sign for a big contract with Mississippi State? A good deal? <laughs> I mean, you know, he gets to he gets to learn under the uh the the passing genius Mike Leach, who I mean, I'm sort of dubious about, you know, the idea that Mike Leach is this wonderful college football character, right? But he plays one game in the SEC as a head coach and sets the record for a single game passing. Just sort of Putting a little chink into that armor that, you know, the SEC is that somehow the defense is so good that nobody could ever run that offense in the SEC. Uh, we, we saw it took one game for that to kind of fall away, right? Sort of hurts when the best 
player on your team and in the nation who happens to play defensive back oh, isn't God. able to play like a, a you know the, the last minute in, in front of uh you know against the team that has the the architect of the best passing uh, offense in college football it hurts a little bit that's all i'm saying okay well i mean yeah, dbu next man up is what you would think right you would think you would think but i i guess they just i, I guess they just weren't tough enough to win against the Mike Leach offense. Can we all agree, though, real quick, though, that like we all know intellectually that none of this matters. Like this season mm-hmm. is stupid. Like it, like nobody should be held accountable for what's actually happening on the field under these circumstances. But I think emotionally, we can't. Un- like it's hard to to get your your heart around that, right? Because like, I'm like, oh man, yeah, TC's really fucking up, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think like obviously. It's a coping mechanism from a, the fan perspective to intellectualize it by saying that that it doesn't uh, that it doesn't matter because the teams like Florida or um, you know whoever like played really well this weekend is like fuck yeah this matters this is the most important <laughs> season in the history of college football like look at the grit and the perseverance and the toughness in the face of all this adversity well, like and they're saving the country yeah. you know? <laughs> right. it's going to be a really weird season for competitive reasons for non-competitive reasons and like for all that we've talked about the cancellations postponements the coming back it turns out that now three teams are not playing out of all back when it was like every team had canceled or we thought that every team was going to cancel it's it's now down to three teams that are not playing josh which are those three teams that aren't playing so i will confess that we had to stop and do a retake because i didn't remember <laughs> who they were and when i when i uh tell you who they were you'll understand why i didn't remember the three teams that are not playing college football in the fall of in, 2020 in division, in division one division a one old dominion are, these are all teams that you probably didn't know were playing in the first place. Old Dominion, Yukon, and New Mexico State. They're all in the bowl subdivision. We're not talking about, you know, one double A champion. These are all teams that Joel would watch if they just right. happen to be on TV. And only Joel. New Mexico State has had some pretty good teams a couple of years ago. Yeah. No, but <laughs> Go Aggies. I, so what New Mexico State is an independent, and so they probably presumably had difficulty building a schedule. Same mm-hmm. with uh, UMass, right? Because they're no longer in a league right now, correct? Yeah, UMass is going to try to play a limited schedule. Yeah, see, that's the thing. This is what, you know, in the retake, that we were, since we're, you know, lift, lifting the curtain here, you know, I was going all like, why is UMass playing football? It doesn't make any sense. Like, they have nothing to gain. They're not going to, you know, play in some sort of big bowl game. They're probably going to get their ass kicked in every game the rest of the season. I Like, it just speaks to the illness that we're all infected with. Not COVID, just this, you know, <laughs> that football is so deeply within our veins and so deeply within our, you know, our collective psyche that we do, we can't, we can't turn away from it in the same way that these programs can't give it up. You know, they're, they're just like, well, we've, we've got to be out there. Everybody else is playing. I mean, what, why would you be out there, UMass? It just doesn't make, wait, is it UConn or UMass? <laughs> Which is We're definitely leaving this end. We're leaving that end. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> should be playing. Yeah, right. Nobody should be, yeah, Nobody so should be playing. I UMass so and UConn, we don't even They're know. Who, school. We can't even tell you apart. I, the only difference, I know that Marcus can't be played at the, at the one that's not UConn. That's right. All right. I think what Joel's saying is that nobody in the Northeast part of the United States should play football. Never. Give it up, man. Um, Speaking speaking of sports that are not as deeply in our veins, although they're, they're, it's in Stefan's veins a little bit, is uh, mm-hmm. hockey. Stefan, um, there was a story about life inside the NHL bubble, and I didn't re- and written by 
uh, Greg Wyshynski uh, and Emily Kaplan for ESPN. And before that story came out, which is really good and interesting, I didn't realize they didn't allow any independent media inside the bubble. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in there. Like they talk to players confidentially. It's like like very odd situation. And I, I guess it sort of helps explain why there weren't more stories about what was happening inside the NHL bubble. Cause they didn't, they literally did not let anyone tell the stories except I guess for official state hockey media. No, I thought the story was fascinating because on the one hand, the NHL it's worked, um, hasn't gotten as much attention as the NBA, but they've had, I think no cases for the players and frontline staff. Um, I think they've had a few cases for like the ancillary staff that do work that don't come into contact with the frontline players and staff. Um, they did this in two cities, Toronto and Edmonton. Um, and hockey update, game six of the Stanley Cup finals between the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Dallas Stars is tonight. Tampa Bay is up three games to two. But the descriptions from the players and the comments from the players make you feel again like none of this probably should have happened. The sort of the psychological and emotional deprivations that these guys seem to have suffered in this bubble were pretty staggering. I mean, here's one quote that I really liked. You walk inside from your meal room right into the rink, then you get to the end of your second day, and it was like, I haven't been outside, seen the sun, or breathed fresh air in 48 hours. They had no families. They had no real diversions. And the the part of the story, Josh, that was intriguing was that the NHL sold this as if it was going to be like a vacation. They pr- they printed brochures with like pictures of people fishing and playing golf, and the players ended up doing almost none of it. Like especially in Edmonton. Yeah, I mean the pl- the players are like that fly fishing thing was a lie. They did not <laughs> let us go go fly fishing. I mean, Joel, the two things that I took away from this story are the players felt lied to like the league Mm -hmm. sold and and i think you heard this from nba players as well like that they felt like they were told whatever they needed to be told to get them in this bubble Mm -hmm. so that they could have the season start so that's the one thing and then the second thing was the player saying at the end we will never do this again and we might actually have to do this again in order to have sports still but then even during the even in in the process of like the kicker of this article, they're like, "We'll never do this again." And then like, "Well, maybe we do it again." Uh, and <laughs> maybe that, for the playoffs. But that's gonna be. I think Joel, that's gonna be the big tension in all of these leagues going into 2021. Is like knowing what they know now and having gone through this experience, will players ever consent to doing this again? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be. This might be the new normal for this country, for the world, that the bubble might be the only way that we can pull these sports off um, with any degree of, you know, certainty that, you know, that except, there's college football. Yeah, except college football, right? <laughs> which is, which has gone so great so far, right? If anything, it, it's funny you brought up college football because it makes me think if they're going to lie to NHL players who have a union, who have collectively bargained all the stuff about, you know, the accommodations, uh, the amenities, all these are things that they said they were going to do that did not actually materialize. And at the end, the players are like pissed off about it. Imagine what's happening to college athletes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, you know, if they're, go- if they're going to lie to it in the face of these guys, you know, some are millionaires, some are not, but whatever. Like, if they're willing to do that, this thing, I don't, I don't think that that's something that's uncommon and that we, we probably will hear 
a little bit more about it, you know, come January or something like that. I would have, I would have. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're going to hear about it as soon as the NBA finals end, mm-hmm. and as soon as the Stanley Cup is hoisted in an empty rink with weird ambient sound being played through loudspeakers. Um, they're supposed to start playing again, you know, January. What's the what's the start time for these leagues? Yeah, you know, a couple months off and back at it. Um, it will be very interesting to see how these unions, which were pretty cooperative, you know, the, the spirit of getting these seasons played was enormous because the incentives were perceived as enormous. Will they be as cooperative now? I mean, you know, will the NHL need a guarantee of fly fishing <laughs> for the players to return? That's well, a big question. Well, Adam Silver has talked about wanting to play in front of fans and, you know, baseball, which we're um, moving into the postseason this week. They're doing this hybrid model of um, early rounds at the home stadiums as they've done all regular season and then bubbles towards the end of the playoffs. Like, um, and, and maybe that's what we'll, we'll see in, in other sports, uh, uh, a hybrid approach. Well, look at the NFL. Just look at the NFL this past week. They had their first player to miss a game, uh, the Falcons cornerback, A.J. Terrell, because he tested positive at a practice on Friday, right? Well, he had already been at practice. You know what I mean? So, like, po- potentially other players have been exposed even though they've been tested. This, it's just, it's just going to be real easy because we've, we've talked about how well things have gone so far, but we're really not that far into this. And, you know, the virus isn't going away. Like, even if, like, pe- teams are handling it well early, like, you have to maintain the same level of diligence and, like, discipline to pull this off. And mm-hmm. I don't know, man. We'll see. Well, what we haven't seen is an indoor sport attempt to bring fans back, and that's the that that's the challenge that's going to be facing the NHL and the NBA and the WNBA um, over the winter. One final thought on hockey is that um, the ratings have been way down. It has not caused any kind of political conversation about. Is it because hockey players are not speaking out against China or anything like that? There hasn't been any speculation there. I wonder why. I actually don't wonder why. But um, I don't think that it's because hockey is bad or dumb or or any reason. Like the obvious explanation for this is that there's just so much going on right now. And if you look at sports cumulatively, they're doing great ratings. If you just add everything together. But we all have to make choices about what it is that we watch. Um, you know, maybe, Joel, you can get three TVs that you have on <laughs> all the time, just in the, in the background, and then you could uh, have have everything on. But, like, it's just so obvious, like, what is happening here, that the audience for um, television, just as a standard thing, has gone down. And so the numbers are going to be down just naturally. And then there's just a bunch of different things competing for our attention. Plus, there's like the, you know, presidential debate happening on on Tuesday and the finals are starting the next day. I mean, it's just like an insane time to be alive. And so the fact that like the Stanley Cup finals aren't doing that well in the ratings, I mean, and the markets aren't the traditional hockey markets, it like says absolutely nothing about the sport and its health. It's just like, this is what's happening in the world right now. And like, that's it. Think about how unfair it is for the WNBA, for instance. You know what I mean? Like, like we didn't even discuss them. They're playing, they're right right in the playoffs right now. And, you know, they're not getting the coverage. I mean, I think the thing is, is that everybody that returned initially thought that they were going to have the spotlight to themselves, right? Like, they're like, oh yeah, this is a great time to have a captive audience. And then everybody came back. And so now you have to make decisions about what you're going to watch. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, 
This is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to discuss the success or the potential success of American soccer players abroad. And we'll discuss why that success or potential success is so important to one Stefan Fatsis, his self-worth, his self-conception. To hear that conversation, to psychoanalyze Stefan, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Just a quick note of apology for the sound quality in parts of our next segment. We had some difficulties with the recording. The boys' basketball team at St. Benedict's Preparatory School in Newark has won seven of the last nine New Jersey state championships. It recruits top talent from around the state and prospective talent from Africa. It sends kids to D1 programs every year. It's sponsored by Adidas. And yet, here's what Father Edwin Leahy, the school's headmaster since 1972, thinks of the sport. I like basketball. I like watching our kids compete. But I'm not a fan of basketball right now in this country. I think it's a nouveau slavery. I think it's a new way of buying and selling kids of color. Up and back, go! Basketball is presented to these kids as the way out, and it's an illusion. It's not a way out for them. They have a better chance of being a neurosurgeon than they do of being a professional basketball player. Get on the line again, because this is not going to work. Go! The ones who make it is good for them, but the ones who kind of get left on the side is disastrous for them. That's from a new 12-part documentary series, Benedict Men, which was created by our good friend Jonathan Hawk. Stephen Curry is an executive producer and appears in the series as a presenter. You can watch Benedict Men on Quibi. Each episode is about 8 to 10 minutes long. Father Edwin Leahy joins us now. Welcome, Father. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Stephen. Father Ed, in that clip, you sound pretty disdainful, nouveau slavery, and yet you've got this powerhouse program. You've got a powerhouse soccer program. One of the unstated conflicts in Benedict Men is the way that the school navigates the moral and ethical problems in high school basketball. What makes St. Benedict's different? How do you justify even having a program? Well, we justify it because, number one, it does provide opportunities for some kids, but it also, those students who are players uh, also can be a help to the other kids in the school, all of whom think they can be players too. And so when you're able to say, okay, you go try to try to be a player and go out there with those guys and, and see if you can do it. And it becomes obvious to, to, to guys that they really don't can't play on that level. And then, it, then the adults can get involved and help con- have conversations about discovering other talents that you never know you had because you were already pigeonholed when you were younger into thinking that the only thing you could do is play basketball. You didn't know anything about fencing. You didn't know anything about water polo. You didn't know anything about crew because who tells kids in the cities, especially African-Americans and Latinos? Our crew team, when they walk with a shell at a regatta, everybody thinks they stole a shell because they're the only African-American, the only guys of color there at the event, right? So uh, how would they know if those possibilities exist for them? Because we don't, the society doesn't put that in front of them. So all you all kids think they can do is, is play basketball or football. We don't play American football or be an entertainer of some kind, right? 
In fact, that's what professional basketball and football is, entertainers, right? I always think about Bill Russell. You guys are probably too young to remember Bill Russell when he played with the Celtics and they won all kinds of championships. Uh, somebody asked him once why he retired when he did. And he said, well, he woke up one morning and he realized that he was running around in front of 15,000 people half naked playing a kid's game. And I decided it was time to stop. But they also asked him, he said, how many, how many back there, at that point, they probably said, how many colored, when they asked him this, played for the University of San Francisco. He played at San Francisco when they won two national championships in a row. And uh, they asked, how many, how many uh, guys of color play for San Francisco? He said, two at home, three on the road, and four, five whenever we're behind. But, so, but that was the world then. And the world hasn't changed that much for the majority of, of people. You just have to look at the situation in the country now, right, that we're living with. That uh, It's still a disaster for people of color and especially young men of color because we worked, we meaning white people, we worked overtime and we were, we were professionals. We knew exactly what we had to do in order to maintain the, the economy in the country of slavery. We had to neutralize or worse, destroy the African male because it was the, the African cultures still to this day are so, so male dominated, right? You couldn't have a strong African-American male and have slavery. You had to destroy the guy. The males humiliate them do it and we did we did and we still do it in a lot of ways so giving a voice to these to these young men and now young women because they barged in on the place but the, the giving a voice to these young men is what we really work overtime trying to do and letting kids discover things for themselves rather than us imposing it does that make sense to you so they helping them to discover other talents that they have I'm just sort of curious. I would like to know, Father Leahy, where you got your race politics from. Can you just talk to me a little bit about the evolution of this and where you sort of came to this revelation about what society did to black people and black men in particular? So we, I, between 67 and 72 here, post-revolution uprising, uh, history has commented on it in different ways here in Newark, right? In fact, now it's always talked about about riots. It's, it's always about rioting, right? It's the only word the, the news media can, it's rioting. When white people do it, it's a revolution. When black people do it, it's a riot. So at any rate, our school closed because of all kinds of stuff in the city and the declining numbers of kids in the school in 1972. We lost 14 men from our religious community, from our monastery. They went to another place about 22 miles west in a monastery. So we were sitting here deciding, what, what were we going to do? And uh, I'll make a long story shorter. We decided to do an educational venture. 13 months later, on July 2nd, 1973, we opened an educational venture, but it was not St. Benedict's Prep. We did not call it St. Benedict's Prep. We tried it. We changed logos. We changed it stationary. Why? Why? <laughs> and then why? the answer to why became clear, uh, because most people, I'm, most people say, you know, you know I'm not, I'm not racist. White people say, I'm not racist. I have, you know, you know the rest of the line. I have a black friend and all that kind of stuff. Racism is in all of us. Why didn't we call it St. Benedict's Prep? It had a 104-year-old history. It was easy to call the people, the 14 men who left us, oh, see, race, racism. But those of us who stayed here, we were the good guys. We weren't racist. Well, why didn't we call it St. Benedict's Prep then if we weren't racist? Racism, racism is America's original sin. It's in all of us, of white people. It's in all of us, right? 
So at any rate, we don't call it Saint Tibet. One night at a parents' meeting, this is a year or two in, Carl Lamb Sr., L-A-M-B, the dad of Carl Lamb Jr. was a student. He said to me one night, he said, Father, I got to ask you a question. What's up, Mr. Lamb? He said, how come it was good enough to be St. Benedict's Prep with its storied history? It was good enough to be St. Benedict's Prep when it was all of you. Now that it's all of us, it can't be St. Benedict's Prep anymore. I didn't have an answer for him. I said, Mr. Lamb, I think you just reopened St. Benedict's Prep. So what we learned from that, uh, Joel, is what Bill Wilson knew when he started Alcoholics Anonymous, which was to take the cotton out of our ears and stick it in our mouth, right? To shut up and to listen. And people, people may be poor, but they're not stupid, right? So that people would teach us in the community how we might be able to walk with them and accompany them through, through life. And that's exactly what we've been doing for 48 years. Folks in town have embraced us, put their arms around us and taught us how we might be able to be of help because of our, our influence, our leverage in the greater society. So how do you talk to the basketball players? You mentioned talking to the student body about how this stuff can be a delusion. But for the actual players on the team who are able to use basketball as a vehicle to get an education, to maybe change um, their family situation, how do you speak to them about a thing that for most people actually is a delusion, but for them isn't? Yeah, I, I, well, one of the ways I speak to them is by the people that we put in front of them. Right? Mark Taylor, for example, who happens to be an, a great coach, who and Jonathan got a, a great line from him. He said, what we do here is an advanced placement course in basketball. So putting the best people possible in front of the kids so that they have a chance of achieving their... Uh, their desires, their dreams, their passion uh, uh, is one of the things that I can do. And then when I, I go to practice most days and most, I go to most of our practices uh, of all the various activities and, uh, and to encourage the kids and to encourage them, talk to them, give them a bad time, do stupid hook shots that, uh, that sometimes go in and they go out of their minds over them. <laughs> Encouragement. That's what, most of life is about that in relationships. It's just about encouragement. One of the things that comes comes out in the series is that, look, you're not immune to the selfishness of, of high school basketball, the scholarship pressure, the AAU pressure, the recruitment, the families. Um, one kid in the, in, the, in the series says, I need to do my thing, get the schools I want to, looking at me. There's a father in the series who says uh, we're in the C.J. Wilcher business right now when he decides to shut the player down uh, for his season because he's got a bad ankle. Um, you know, there's a, you've got a hard-ass coach. There's still the pressure and the desire to win. Um, does that all jibe together? Is it the sort of the school's philosophy that helps you feel like that works, that makes it different from your run-of-the-mill basketball factory? Yes. I think so, because when you walk in our front door, uh, you see a sign that says, whatever hurts my brother or my sister hurts me. Um, that's, why, that's one of the struggles that Jonathan captured in telling the story, is that in order to be, for us to be us, we have to be willing to give up what I want for what we need. That's how you build community, right? And what's been destroyed, the sense of community. That's the struggle on any team 
giving up what I want for what we need. But when you have people who are telling you, you got to make sure you get yours, that causes this big conflict that that, uh, that goes on. And then to see it, to see it in really bold relief is when you see a, a child, a 16 year old teenager become an asset. That's, and that's what, that's what's the sad part of about it is that they become an asset to either to the handler, to the AAU person, or to even in some cases to their parent. They become an asset. There's a, I talk about to parents about this all the time. There's a million people that can be your coach or your, your agent. There's one person in the world that can be your father and there's one that can be your mother. So be his father and be his mother. Oh, try to be his agent. Somebody else do that. Can I ask you just a quick follow up on that then? Because, you know, it did come up. And even, you know, Steph Curry, who I think is one of the producers, um, you know, positioned St. Benedict as a, you know, uh, antidote to today's me first culture of youth basketball. Well, let me ask you this. So wouldn't it be easier for St. Benedict's to to sort of pull off on that by not recruiting as many talented players? Because that was one of the things that I thought of. I was like, well, you're sort of setting it up for there to be this tension between kids who rightfully are thinking about their future and the greater glory of the program, which doesn't, you know, that's it, that's awesome, but that also doesn't do much for them individually. So, like, wouldn't it be helpful to maybe think about team building in that way? Yeah, here's the problem in terms of me. I, when, we, when we got this venture going again back in 73, and we had a, a basketball team, I went to a game, and we, we must have gotten beaten by... 75 points. I had to walk out at half time because I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> so I came back in I, and I swore that day that I would never put guys of color in a situation where they get rolled over like that by, uh, by and, and that, in that case, a team of mostly white kids. I've never put them in that. So we compete on a pretty high level in all of our activities whether it's crew or fencing or, or whatever. So in order to do that in the world that we compete in, you have to have guys that can compete on that level. That's kind of what says my conscience sometimes <laughs> about the whole thing. Father Edwin Leahy is the headmaster at St. Benedict's Preparatory School in Newark. The basketball team there is the subject of a new series on Quibi called Benedict Men. Father Leahy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate your interest. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And Joel, you have the St. Benedict's basketball alumni list up on your screen yeah i do there's a there's a bunch of them man walk through that for us all right well they're not all basketball players but I, we can start out by saying that pj carlissimo's uh dad is a graduate from there like in the 1930s so <laughs> okay you've got that isaiah briscoe trayvon duvall who played his freshman year at duke tyler ennis who else we got here oh this is the one that kind of blew me away i think blew us all away right J.R. Smith, St. Benedict's graduate. NBA finalist. NBA finalist, Lakers. 2020, J.R. Smith. Lance Thomas, 
Samardo Samuels. I think that's the, the list I've got in front of me right now. I'm sure there's more. G, G. Gordon Liddy is also a St. Benedict's graduate, too. They don't, they don't, talk, they don't talk about that as much, I'm sure. Samardo Samuels. G. Gordon Liddy. I feel like out of that group, the one that gave me the most remember, remember this guy vibes was Samardo Samuels. Yeah. So why don't, we, why don't we honor him? He went to Louisville. Stefan, what is your Samardo Samuels? In 1971, I was eight years old and very into the NFL. Idolized Fran Tarkenton, collected mini helmets from IHOP, ate TV dinners in front of This Week in Pro Football. That November, 48% of American households tuned into the ABC movie of the week, Brian's Song. I almost certainly watched it then and whenever it re-aired the next few years. I definitely cried. Everyone cried. I'm sure hearing Michelle Legrand's score still makes people cry. Da, 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 da. Brian's song, for anyone unfamiliar, is about the relationship between the black Chicago Bears running back Gail Sayers and his white backup Brian Piccolo, who gets cancer and dies at the age of 26. It was based on chapter six of Sayers' autobiography, I Am Third. The book was published just six months after Piccolo's death in June 1970, and Sayers was still in the league when the movie debuted. I rewatched Brian's song after Sayers himself died last week. It mostly holds up. The acting is good. Billy D. Williams as Sayers, James Kahn as Piccolo, Jack Warden as George Hallis, and most of the tear-jerking scenes are understated, like Sayers' famous speech in which he asks an NFL awards banquet to pray for his dying buddy. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him, too. And tonight, hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. But there's one part of Brian's song that does not hold up at all, that is in fact difficult to watch and process today, and that's the way it addresses race. Here, for instance, is a scene in which a reporter, played by pioneering Chinese-American TV anchor and soccer announcer Mario Machado, asks Piccolo about rooming with Sayers. They were the first interracial roommates on the Bears, not by choice, but at the suggestion of a black co-captain of the team, and they were just the second in the NFL. You're Brian Piccolo. Sure, uh, that's right. Piccolo, P-I-C-C-O-L-O. You two are the only black and white player rooming together on the team. Uh, any problems so far? Not as long as he doesn't use a bathroom. <laughs> because, you know, segregated washrooms, ha ha. When Piccolo watches a Bears game from his hospital bed and sees Sayers chasing a bouncing ball, he shouts in frustration, Pick it up, dummy! It's like the ball was wearing a white sheet. Talking to Sayers on the phone, Piccolo says, They tell me you gave me a pint of blood. That explains it. I've had this craving for chitlins all day. But the most jarring scene is one in which Piccolo tries to motivate an exhausted Sayers to do a few more leg extensions during his rehab from ACL surgery. Piccolo calls him the N-word twice. Sayers isn't angry or offended. He laughs convulsively, and then both men break down in hysterics. It's mind-boggling to think that this was on primetime network television and half the country was watching. 
In I Am Third, Sayers recounted other examples, Piccolo telling a waitress who asked Sayers his name that, quote, they all look alike, end quote, Piccolo calling Sayers the N-word when he watched him fumble on TV. But Sayers said that's just how they were. The best thing about our relationship, he wrote in I Am Third, was that we could kid each other all the time about race. It was a way, I guess, of easing into each man's world. It helped take the strangeness out of it. Sayers and Piccolo weren't oblivious to the times. When Piccolo was a star at All-White Wake Forest in 1963, he famously put his arm around Marilyn's Daryl Hill, the only black player in the ACC, to silence an abusive, jeering Wake student section. In I Am Third, Sayers described being arrested as an undergraduate at Kansas during a sit-in at the chancellor's office to protest housing discrimination in fraternities and sororities. After he became an NFL star, Sayers donated speaking fees to the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund and worked with Jesse Jackson on Operation Breadbasket, which used boycotts to pressure white businesses to hire black employees and buy from black suppliers. Brian Song doesn't mention any of that, or the nation's convulsive political and cultural background of the times. Instead, it uses a white guy dropping the N-word and his black buddy laughing about it as a way to acknowledge and diffuse in a sanitized, non-confrontational way the racial tension in America. For network TV in 1971, that was safe and maybe even progressive. Sayers and Piccolo, black and white, transcending skin color to share a deep and genuine emotional bond. It was a good message. But 50 years later, it's worth noting that while Brian's song portrays the black guy as the beloved hero and loyal friend, caring, intelligent, respected, his heroism is in the service of the white guy who dies, for whom the audience weeps. And the black guy is the one who has to shrug off being called the N-word and laugh along with, lighthearted or not, racist jokes. It must have been incredibly tiresome for Sayers. In I Am Third, Sayers described another white Bears teammate who used the N-word to mean the N-word and spread a rumor that Sayers was a militant because he had a black is beautiful bumper sticker on his car, a rumor that almost cost Sayers a business deal. That didn't make the movie either, nor did this anecdote from the book. Sayers noted that he and Piccolo began rooming together in the summer of 1967 during a team trip to Birmingham, Alabama. You can bet we didn't have dinner together in Birmingham that weekend, Sayers wrote. We joked about it a lot, but we went our separate ways. Oof. That was good, man. Uh, I, I guess I understand why I've never seen Brian's song. Um, <laughs> I, I, or why nobody around me has any particular affection for it. Do we have any sense, Stefan, of whether what Sayers said about Piccolo in the autobiography is sincere or whether it was, I mean, athlete memoirs are not always the unvarnished truth. Yeah. I mean, I read most of the, of, of I am third over the weekend and it really does feel like this was sort of the way that they were buddies. This was the language they used and Sayers just went along with it and was like, Oh, pick man, pick, you got to stop that. Um, but it's really, really difficult to read and certainly to listen to now. Um, but America was a fucked up place and remains a fucked up place 50 years later. It's really striking to me that, you know, that made it onto network television and the message that it sent. I mean, as a little white kid watching that, all, as I mentioned to Joel before we before the show, 
you know, what did that do? It sanctioned the use of that language. It was like, that's how black people and white people can get along. It was okay for white people to do that. I don't know how Gail Sayers probably felt about Brian Piccolo, like, you know, for real. Like, well, we, we will never be able to sort of scratch no. the surface of that. But I probably would say this, given the circumstances and the time, that probably was the nicest white person that Gail Sayers met, even under those circumstances. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Tulsa Pashos and subscribe or just reach out. Go to sleep.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at sleep.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.